You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Canada's Court. My name is Megan McMahon, and I'm a criminal defense lawyer in Ottawa and a partner at Davies McMahon LLP. Today's podcast covers the case of Her Majesty the Queen and Russell Stephen Tessier. In the early morning hours of March 16, 2007, the deceased body was discovered in a ditch near Calgary. The victim had been fatally shot in the head. Police determined that Mr. Russell Stephen Tessier was a friend and business associate of the deceased so they asked Mr. Tessier to come in for an interview the following day. Mr. Tessier agreed to the interview and met with police for almost three hours. At no point during this initial interview did police caution Mr. Tessier or advise him of his right to counsel. According to police, at that point in time, Mr. Tessier was not a suspect. Police were simply trying to obtain a timeline and information about the deceased. At Mr. Tessier's suggestion, he even took the interviewing officer to a truck to retrieve items that belonged to the deceased. After the interview, Mr. Tessier called the police detachment twice with additional information. When no one returned his call, he reattended at the station that same evening. Mr. Tessier told the officer that he'd forgotten to mention that he had retrieved his gun from a shooting range the day before and stored it in its case in his bedroom closet. The victim had been staying with Mr. Tessier for a few days before he died and had occupied that bedroom. Mr. Tessier asked the officer to accompany him to his apartment in Calgary to confirm that the gun was still there. Two police officers then drove to Calgary with Mr. Tessier. At this point, police had not informed Mr. Tessier that the victim had been shot in the head and may not have even known that fact themselves. When they arrived at the apartment, the gun was not in its case. Mr. Tessier appeared shocked and said that the victim must have taken the gun before he left. Police then chartered and cautioned Mr. Tessier. At trial, Mr. Tessier's counsel sought to exclude all of his statements, both inculpatory and exculpatory, during his first and second police interviews on March 17, 2007. The trial judge rejected Mr. Tessier's argument that he was psychologically detained. He found no evidence of threats or inducements, no atmosphere of oppression, and no reason to doubt that Mr. Tessier had an operating mind. Although Mr. Tessier had not been cautioned by police, he was not a person of interest at the time he gave the statements. The trial judge admitted both of Mr. Tessier's statements into evidence. Mr. Tessier's trial proceeded before a jury. He was found guilty of first-degree murder. He appealed his conviction to the Court of Appeal for Alberta. The court unanimously held that the trial judge erred in his analysis of whether Mr. Tessier made a meaningful choice to speak with police before he was cautioned. The court set aside the conviction and ordered a new trial. Crown was granted leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. The court, the court. Good morning, please be seated. In the case of Her Majesty the Queen against Russell Stephen Tessier, for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Matthew W. Greener. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Frank O. and James V. Palangio. For the intervener, Attorney General of New Brunswick, Patrick Neguinti. For the respondent, Russell Stephen Tessier, Pavel J. Milcharek, 
and Kelsey Sitar for the Intervenor Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Samara Sector. Mr. Greener. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. Um, as I was reading the factums uh, on this matter, and, and I'd like to begin my submissions by, by saying, there seems to be broad agreement among the parties on at least some high-level principles that govern the analysis here. So it's accepted, I think, by everyone that the confessions rule as it's developed um, has two purposes focused on the rights of the accused. Um, the first is the reliability purpose that focuses at excluding unreliable confessions from evidence. And secondly, uh, a fairness purpose, which is principally derived from the principle against self-incrimination. <clears throat> at the same time, as this court has um, held in Oikel and again in Singh, these objectives must be balanced against society's interest in effective law enforcement. The police are entitled to question anyone who may have information concerning crimes, um, really focuses on is where to strike that balance and the particular rules uh, that govern the voluntariness analysis under the common law confessions rule. It's my position that properly understood, the confessions rule balances these two factors by requiring the Crown to prove two things beyond a reasonable doubt. First, that the statement is the product of an operating mind. Second, that there has been no improper interference by the, by the police uh, in the accused decision to make a statement. The focus of the voluntariness analysis in my submission is on the actions of police, not on the uh, particular uh, understanding or motivations of the accused. And uh, as this court has described the threshold for a finding of improper interference or improper uh, persuasion, uh, this court has used language like uh, conduct which effectively and unfairly deprives the accused of the ability to choose or um, conduct that overbears the will of the accused. Where a trial judge properly applies the governing law, it's clear in my submission that uh, the ultimate decision of voluntariness is entitled to a significant degree of deference. Uh, and ought not to be disturbed on appeal. Here, uh, I say the trial judge considered all the relevant circumstances. He identified the correct applicable legal principles and applied those to the facts as he found them. His decision that Mr. Tessier's statement was voluntary uh, should be restored by this court. He also made a finding that Mr. Tessier wasn't a suspect at the time uh, at the time of the questioning. Um, I'm sorry, my mic keeps going off. Um, had he not made that finding, would it have changed necessarily his decision on whether the statement was voluntary? Uh, it's difficult to say. My, my submission would be, even had he found Mr. Tessier to be a suspect, um, the presence or absence of a caution remains one factor to consider in the analysis. Um, it may have been a more significant factor had he made that finding. Um, it's hard to say. So would it be fair, uh, would it be then, would it then follow that if that finding were 
palpably and overridingly in error, that the balancing would have to be redone? Uh, I agree it would follow. I don't agree that that finding was uh, an error. Um, well, let's talk about that. Sure. Um, Sergeant White admits at the time of the first conversation that he was hoping to extract a confession from Tessier. So Sergeant White's evidence, as I read it, is um, he agrees in cross-examination that, you know, if Mr. Tessier were prepared to confess, he was prepared to receive that confession. But he's also clear that he at the outset of the interview, did not consider Mr. Tessier either a suspect or a person of interest. That given the information that he had going into the interview, it was very limited. He knew that he holds the truth as far as Sergeant White's concerned. Gosh, is there any reason why his DNA might be near the crime scene? Gosh, you have a great deal of emotion. You're on edge. Can I look at your shoe to eliminate you? And again, he admits that, that uh, he was ready to receive a confession. So going in, sure, uh, but in the course of that, doesn't it seem that we're moving closer and closer to suspicion? So there's some question I'd suggest in what it means uh, to have suspicion. Sergeant White's evidence was uh, he's gauging Mr. Tessier's reaction, and the trial judge accepted that evidence. He had no grounds to detain him, and of course he doesn't detain or arrest him at the conclusion of the interview, either interview. Um, Mr. Tessier is not arrested for 10 years. Uh, he's perhaps alert to the possibility, given some of the information provided to him by Mr. Tessier and Mr. Tessier's overall conduct and, and what I would say are his, Mr. Tessier's intentions in the interview. Uh, Sergeant White perhaps is alive to the possibility Mr. Tessier might have information that he's holding back. Um, does that make him in fact, a suspect. Sergeant White was clear that it didn't. He's open to this possibility, but it's a very preliminary stage of the investigation. He has no forensic evidence. There's no witness evidence that would connect Mr. Tessier to the offense. Well, is that the standard for someone being a suspect? I mean, I know Sergeant White seemed to think so, that the reason that Mr. Tessier wasn't a suspect was that there wasn't any evidence. Um, but even if he subjectively didn't believe him to be a suspect, wouldn't the reasonably competent investigator have thought that he was at that point? Well, the information that Sergeant White has, again, really largely boils down to the fact that Mr. Tessier is an associate of the deceased. So it's clear, and I don't dispute this, that the police will uh, pay attention to, they'll look into associates of the deceased. That's clearly what the investigation as a whole is doing at this stage. You have multiple officers, not restricted to Sergeant White, who are out tracking down Mr. Burdall's ex-wives, his other friends. There's some questioning in this interview of other contacts that the police may follow up on. Uh, and so in my submission, we would expect police to be at least alert to that possibility, but... Um, there's no evidence to suggest that Mr. Tessier in particular, as opposed to these other contacts of Mr. Burdall's, uh, is particularly likely to have been involved. And so suspicion in my submission, uh, it, it's 
too low a bar, essentially, to say that if there's some possibility uh, of, of involvement, then uh, we should impute suspicion to the police. Um, impute that in the context of the interview, uh, police have treated the accused, uh, who again is, is brought in voluntarily as a witness, uh, treat him as, as a suspect. Well, mere, There's mere, possibility. Is your, is your point that mere suspicion that someone might have done something does not reach a level of, I have reason to suspect you. Is that what you're saying? I am saying that, yes. All right, thank I, you. I'm also saying, in maybe a roundabout way, um, because in the back of my mind is the Worrell decision, which was relied on uh, at trial by counsel for Mr. Tessier. Uh, and Worrell, in my submission, sets a bar at when the police have information that would alert a reasonably competent investigator of the possibility uh, that the person they're speaking to is involved in the commission of the offense they should caution or they're obligated to caution. And um, in my submission, the Worrell test certainly, even if we're going to rely on the suspect witness distinction, which I accept is relevant though not determinative, um, Worrell simply sets too low a bar for that finding. Something more akin to reasonable grounds to suspect or reasonable grounds to believe uh, is more consistent with uh, the voluntariness rule and providing police with a scope to investigate, particularly in early stages where we want them to speak to as many people as possible, gather as much evidence as possible, and not sort of narrow their minds or, or um, develop tunnel vision uh, very early in the investigation unless it's warranted by fairly compelling evidence. Now, um, in terms of the suspect witness distinction, I, I, um, it, it's my position that um, that's a relevant consideration, but it's not determinative. And uh, that connects in my submission to what role does the police caution play in the analysis, the presence or absence of a police caution. The Court of Appeal in my submission aired uh, and gave um, essentially a dispositive place to that factor because of how it approached the question of voluntariness from the outset. And it approaches that question at paragraph 46 of its decision, um, which I, I'll, I'll take you there, if I may, and it's in the condensed book at tab two, um, page 11. Paragraph 46, at the end of that paragraph, the error which the Court of Appeal identifies, purported error, in the reasoning of the trial judge is this. He focused his analysis on the four factors identified in Oikel, using them as a checklist, but failing to address the key issue in this case. Did Mr. Tessier make a meaningful choice to speak to police? Did Mr. Tessier understand that what he said to the police could be used against him and that he was not obliged to say anything? Again, uh, two pages later at paragraph 54. Uh, 
the trial judge found uh, that he, Mr. Tessier, was 40 years old, employed with a certain level of confidence and intelligence. But that finding does not conclude the analysis on voluntariness because it does not address whether he made a meaningful choice to speak to the police, knowing that he was not required to answer police questions or that anything he did say would be taken down and could be used in evidence. In my submission, the issue here, um, and I agree with the Court of Appeal, the issue is not whether the police needed to administer a caution, but where the Court of Appeal says the issue is, did Mr. Tessier speak knowing subjectively that he had the right to silence, that anything he said would be taken down and could be used in evidence? That's a focus on Mr. Tessier's subjective understanding of his right to silence, uh, which is inconsistent with the development of the confessions rule. And specifically, as I've indicated in my factum, the requirement that the Crown prove that when the accused makes uh, a statement to police, he knows he doesn't have to, he knows the statement can be given in evidence against him, that essentially requires the Crown to prove a waiver of the right to silence on the beyond the reasonable doubt standard. And uh, in the factum I've given you, uh, most notably in my submission, a bear, where Justice McLaughlin issue then was, is very clear that the right to silence, and um, this is not a right to silence, which is exactly identical to voluntariness, but is derived from it, and, and I'd suggest uh, should be interpreted consistently with it, does not require proof of a waiver of the right to silence. That's not the threshold. The threshold is, uh, in my submission, was this a choice that was improperly interfered with by state action? So the Court of Appeal in formulating voluntariness in the way that it did in my submission misapplied uh, this court's decision in Whittle. So the trial judge makes this finding correctly in my submission that um, the absence of a caution here um, isn't a matter that goes to whether or not Mr. Tessier has an operating mind. That was an argument that was made before him. Um, in the voir dire transcript, it's page 257, um, second volume of the appeal record, that because in Whittle, this court framed the limited cognitive capacity test in terms of an ability to understand the police caution, it would follow that where no caution is given, the accused can't understand those things. And so that should be sufficient to raise a reasonable doubt as to voluntariness. The trial judge rejected that. And the Court of Appeal, as I um, read their reasons, um, seems to suggest that he, may, that he erred in doing so, that this indicates that he wrongly focused on purely limited cognitive capacity uh, and not on what the accused actually knew. But in my submission, Whittle is clear um, that it's a case about capacity to understand. And that's at tab 4B. Uh, of the condensed book. In paragraph 46, uh, sorry, page 46 of the condensed book, um, Justice Sapinka says the operating mind test requires that the accused possess a limited degree of cognitive ability to understand what he or she is saying, 
and comprehend the evidence may be used in proceedings against the accused. There's no evidence on this record that Mr. Tessier was unable to understand these things. He plainly knew he was speaking to police. Uh, he plainly was not unsophisticated, um, had some worldly experience, um, was not intoxicated, was not suffering from any evident uh, mental illness, or, nor indeed is there any evidence to that effect in the record. And then <clears throat> Justice Topinka says in Whittle, did the accused, the, the relevant test is, did the accused possess an operating mind? The test goes no further, and no inquiry is necessary as to whether the accused is capable of making a good or wise choice, or one that is in his or her interest. So Whittle properly read, I say, is in fact purely a question about cognitive capacity. It does not require the court to um, consider even whether or not the accused was able to make a good choice, let alone that he actually made one. Uh, and so Worrell, a case relied on by the Court of Appeal, which suggests that Whittle stands for the proposition that voluntariness requires proof of an actual awareness of what's at stake in speaking to persons in authority. Uh, I say is mistaken and the Court of Appeal erred in reading it that way. Instead, what I say is, uh, and the analysis is on, uh, in all cases, whether the accused made a meaningful choice to speak to police. Other cases, this court has described that as an effective choice. Um, and in my submission, what's required there to prove that is not that the accused waived his right to silence on the, the high standard for waiver, but whether he was capable of making a choice, had the cognitive capacity to make that choice, and whether the choice actually made was not improperly influenced by what the police did so that we can say it was in fact his or her choice. Um, the focus of the analysis is uh, on the actions of the state, of typically the police. Um, but Mr. Greener, may I ask you this question? Accepting all of that that you said is, is the, the correct standard and should be the correct standard, um, what is the problem with making it um, important, and there's different ways of doing that, for the police to ensure that the person knows about those rights. Not that they're waiving them, but that they just have an informational component uh, to those rights, rather than just assuming they know them. What about starting um, any even questioning of a suspect, as in this case where they're getting information, by, by, by uh, setting out that there's no obligation to speak, that there is a right to silence, that there is an ability to use this evidence um, w when they do decide to speak. Because then we're, we're talking about an operating mind. We can talk about all those same th things, but the, the baseline of meaningful choice um, or effective choice or informed choice, uh, we're assuming that there's knowledge. Can we assume that there's knowledge? Um, even under the test that you're putting forward? And, and on what basis? That everybody knows the, their, their rights? Everybody knows the law? So th there's obviously no uh, harm to doing it. And there may, in particular cases, be significant benefit to doing it. Um, but 
uh, I do suggest that um, the law does proceed from a sort of starting point assumption that the police are free to question anyone, but anyone is free not to answer the police, to decline to answer. We see that in Precor, we see it in Esposito, uh, frankly, even in Grant, uh, in terms of detention. Well, and then um, what's the problem with explaining that assumption and just outlining that that is, in fact, the case? So it levels the playing field. It takes away a little bit of the subjective, objective um, difficulties we may have because we have a, a, a shared informational baseline. And it, it kind of reduces the ability or the necessity of saying, when does something like a general questioning about a deceased person become a more targeted investigation that may implicate rights of self-incrimination, if, if, if you know what I'm saying there. Is, is, why would that be, a, why is that wrong or a problem? Or why isn't that just a basically good practical idea? So I think that um, it may well be a good practical idea. The police may be well advised to do it in most cases. But um, what I'll say in general in application of the confessions rule, and then um, in this case maybe in particular, is um, the presence or absence of a caution, in my view, is certainly not irrelevant. It's an important factor in many cases. It's not, I say, determinative in this case. The confessions rule um, has always focused contextually on the full um, set of circumstances, factual circumstances, focusing on whether or not in this case for this accused or for an accused with this accused particular circumstances, um, the police have unfairly influenced the statement. And um, you know, in any case, um, so the suggestion of, well, why not require the police to do that uh, at the outset of every uh, conversation they might have with someone? My suggestion is that um, what this court has held in response to that question in the past is that to caution everyone effectively would, on the one hand, needlessly alarm people. So the content of the caution, it's important to bear in mind, is traditionally you are being or you may be charged with an offense. Uh, you have the right to silence. Anything you say may be given in evidence. So the suggestion that, you know, police doing, for example, door-to-door -door canvassing on a homicide will tell everyone whose door they knock on, um, just be alert to the possibility that we may charge you with an offense here and anything you say uh, maybe given an evidence. But would, the, would a caution have to refer to a charge? I'm not talking about a caution in perhaps the same way. I'm talking about just the, the basic shared informational baseline uh, that we say underpins the case is, is to say, hello, we're canvassing ab about this murder. I, I mean, I, I'm just making this up here now. Um, you don't have to speak with us. We'd like you to speak with us. Um, and But just, you know, whatever you say can be in evidence. And, and But it just it, it, some kind of way there, not that we are charging you when, um, you know, you it, because that would not be appropriate, perhaps. But I'm just talking about the shared informational basis. So what I would say is that in a case where there's no realistic prospect that the person police are speaking with um, is involved in the offense, no um, 
either in fact or even on information known to the police. Um, there's little to be gained. Uh, and maybe we say it would do no harm, but it may in fact deter some number of people from speaking with the police. It may deprive the police of relevant information in particular cases. The confessions rule has sought to balance, as I said, uh, the need to protect rights of the accused, including the right to silence or the privilege against self-incrimination, but not throw up unnecessary roadblocks in the face of effective investigation of crimes. Uh, and secondly, the focus of the voluntariness inquiry, because it's contextual and fact-specific, it has not relied on, and it ought not rely on, um, bright-line rules or formulas about what police do or don't do or say. The law has been, and I suggest ought to be, that um, the real focus is on the coercive power, if I can say it that way, of of the state, the potential for coercion that arises um, in the historical cases, most clearly on arrest detention. Um, and of course, the scope of the need for the protection of the voluntariness rule um, on arrest or detention is um, certainly not irrelevant, but somewhat reduced by the requirements of section 10 of the charter and section seven. Um, the voluntariness inquiry uh, properly focuses on, you know, the circumstances of this investigation. So I don't disagree that it may be a good idea for police in many cases to explain that information in a informal or non-threatening way. I think we will, if the test is actual knowledge of those rights, um, We'll wind up in, I suggest, litigation over whether the way in which the police delivered the words was sufficient to alert this particular person uh, to the particular risks in speaking to police. It seems to me you'll, so, get into a, you'll get into a waiver problem, the very problem that exists throughout our law, which is, oh, well, they didn't really waive because they really didn't know what their rights were, and this is the police telling them, can we really believe the police when they tell us things? You'll get into all that. And so we may as well start giving everybody at the scene of an accident who the police want to just say, did you see anything, their rights to counsel. Mr. I, Mr. I Grenier, could, 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 yeah. could I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you if you wanted to respond to Justice Muldaver. I you didn't call for a response, <laughs> really. <laughs> I have a question that I'd really, this is a question I need your help in, in understanding. I, I, I take your point and that there's a, a kind of a post-detention logic to, the, to, 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 the, to a kind of right to silence sort of analysis that doesn't fit ordinarily with a pre-detention circumstance that we associate with the common law confession circumstance. But I'm wondering about the use of the expression um, uh, meaningful choice or its analogs active choice in some of the confession cases. Thinking of, um, I want to say it right, Hebert, Heb I'm not quite sure how you like to pronounce it, or, or um, even Singh. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering how, how that language, which seems to have been picked up upon, and transferred 
uh, sense that the post-detention notion of choice applies in a pre-detention setting of confession. I'm wondering if, if you, I mean, is, was, was Hebert wrong in using that language, or was it pointing to the fact that, that well, it's wrong to trick someone into thinking that they're speaking to, uh, uh, to not speaking to a police officer as opposed to uh, an undercover cop, which I think which was the case in Hebert, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I agree, Justice Cassero, that we will look to some extent in a bear to the particular rule that was being fashioned in that case. And that rule was, and it's very clear in the decision, um, went beyond the common law confessions rule in certain ways. It was targeted at a particular kind of police activity, the, the cell shot. Um, and so in that case, the fact of detention was... Uh, present and is sort of the trigger for the rule which was uh, crafted in a bear um, it doesn't uh, for example um, prevent the use of undercover officers even to actively elicit evidence prior to custody so the confessions rule i think um, has some commonalities with that rule it's obviously uh, different the confessions rule however i, I do say and i i think this is consistent with Hebert and Singh, um, remains focused on uh, sort of broadly the coercive power of the state. And then within that focus, there are um, what might be called subtler coercive effects, which are brought on or heightened by detention, uh, which may be heightened by the presence of suspicion uh, on the part of the police where that's you know, sort of obviously being communicated um, to a, a person being interviewed. Um, those are factors which are relevant in considering the weight to be allocated to the presence or absence of caution in a particular case. And so in terms of the language of effective choice, meaningful choice or active choice, um, my submission is that the, the analysis there is whether the choice that was made was in fact the choice of the accused in a, I, I mean, in a legal sense, in a legally significant sense. Um, there's no requirement. Uh, we see this in, in Fitton. We see it certainly in Oikel. There's no requirement that the accused have made a statement entirely spontaneously, obviously, um, entirely unprompted by anything done or said by the police, including the asking of questions. Um, but on the other hand, we do, um, there's a permissive inference at least, um, that an accused who chooses to speak in the absence of anything done by the police to force him to do so um, is doing it because he's made a choice to do it. And so that, that I'd suggest is what's meant by meaningful choice. It is the sort of choice in the factual sense that the accused has made to say something. Um, is that a choice which in law we can say was in fact his choice or was it uh, a choice which was forced upon him? Um, by the actions of police. And that's where uh, the cases, uh, Oikel and Spencer in particular, talk about the language of overbearing the will. Isn't this a situation, Mr. Greener, that the law has changed in terms of what a detention is? <laughs> and it seems to me in terms of meaningful choice, the problem with someone who is detained and hasn't given their rights is they feel 
They have no choice but to respond to the police in the circumstances. Not they even, that a reasonable person in the circumstances would feel that he or she does not have a meaningful choice to say, I'm leaving, I don't want to talk anymore. And once you go down that road, which this court has gone, it just seems to me that that is the focus of what we should be looking at. First, was there a detention? Was this person in the circumstances, in effect, deprived of a meaningful choice because a reasonable person in the circumstances would feel that they had no choice but to respond? It seems to me that's where we should be starting these kinds of analysis these days, rather than sort of trying to, you know, alter or wiggle around with the confessions rule where it really isn't necessary. Say about that. I'll put it in the form of a question as opposed to an assertion. Um, no, I agree that, that in many cases, given the breadth of the psychological detention test under Grant, um, that in many of the factual circumstances where this um, type of coercive pressure that we're concerned about is present, um, that'll be also manifested in an analysis under Section 9 or 10 of the Charter, the detention analysis. Um, now, of course, my friends here say that there was a detention here, that the trial judge erred in not finding one. Um, and so uh, it may be helpful just to sort of revisit briefly the, the factors that the trial judge relied on to find no detention here, because there's significant overlap, I'd suggest, between his voluntariness analysis and his detention analysis. Uh, and so, <clears throat> you know, we see in the detention analysis, the emphasis is on the fact that this is a voluntary interview. Mr. Tessier is phoned up by the police. <clears throat> um, he's told they'd like to speak to him about Albert Dahl. He, first officer he speaks to, uh, he says, you know, I'm, I'm out of town. I'm in Disbury. That officer's in Calgary. So, um, but he's willing to attend the Didsbury detachment. So he's invited there. He arrives on his own. When he arrives, he's not searched. He's not placed in handcuffs. He's obviously not arrested. Uh, he's invited back into an interview room, which is the door is closed, but it's not locked. Um, there's no indication that, that Mr. Chessier is told or, or has any reason to believe that it would be locked. And then um, he's interviewed uh, for about 80 minutes uh, about, you know, what he knows about Mr. Tessier's, uh, sorry, Mr. Burdall's comings and goings. Uh, he's asked about his own uh, activities the last couple of days. He, as I agree, directly asked uh, a number of questions. You know, did you kill Al Burdall? Um, questions like that. All of these things were, of course, uh, considered, I say, by the trial judge. Um, but what's particularly significant for a detention analysis um, is the fact that the accused leaves the detachment uh, to go out for a smoke halfway through this first interview. Um, he's not accompanied. Uh, at the end of the interview, he invites Sergeant White to come with him to go see uh, the truck to pick up Al's things from the truck. He asks Sergeant White, can I ride with you? Why don't I ride with you? Uh, I'll tell Ray his friend who's waiting outside for him the whole time. Um, 
then we're going to do that. So it's Mr. Tessier who's sort of taking the lead in in a great deal of this um, interaction with police. Um, and of course, then he returns quite urgently of his own initiative to the detachment. Um, starts making sort of phone calls and then shows back up a couple hours later, uh, insisting on speaking to Sergeant White. Quite insistent again that he have the police accompany him uh, to his apartment in Calgary. So, so all of that, I say, on the facts of this case, uh, support the trial judge's finding that there's no detention here. That, um, you know, what uh, encounter with police, which is largely driven by Mr. Tessier in, in a number of aspects, it's initially prompted by the police, of course, but we expect the police to um, ask questions in a homicide investigation, to contact, to reach out and, and contact uh, people who may have information. Um, really speaks to, in my submission, a lack of compulsion here. Also, he made, despite... a, he made a meaningful choice, right? The evidence is squarely in front of everybody when he says, you know what, I'm not going to give you a DNA sample. Is that, the, is that the kind of situation we looked at to say, oh, my goodness, he didn't know his rights. He felt compelled to do whatever the police wanted him to do. We just ignore that kind of thing, though, for this sort of analysis that this man was not doing precisely what he wanted to do when it suited his purposes and when it didn't. Um, I, um, yeah, I agree that it's relevant to this analysis what Mr. Tessier was doing. Um, you know, if we look at cases like, and to return to voluntariness now, we looked at cases like Oikol, and Spencer, uh, this court in doing the voluntariness analysis has looked to the conduct of the accused in the course of the interview in assessing whether or not his or her will was overborne. So in Spencer, for example, um, this court notes that it's relevant that the accused was aggressive in the interview, that he was the one sort of offering deals, looking for a deal before he confessed. That was relevant to whether or not um, some possible inducement uh, made by the police impacted the decision to confess. And so here, where of course we have no confession, it's, it's an exculpatory statement. It's clear in the record, I'd suggest that Mr. Tessier has a plan in attending uh, this detachment. And so we see him, for example, persistently trying to get information out of Sergeant White about what the police know about the investigation. So he, he asked very early in the interview, you know, when exactly did this take place? When did they find him, Friday afternoon or what? He says, you know, what did happen to him? Was he stabbed or what? Um, was he hacked up, he asks later. Uh, again, when he comes back to talk about the gun, he says very clearly, I don't know how he died. You didn't tell me. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, how it happened, whatever else. He asks Sergeant White, can you tell me anything else? about what happened to him. So it's clear that Mr. Tessier's motivations in participating in this interview are at least in part uh, to get a read on what the police know in the investigation. He says this explicitly, yet he talks to, uh, this is before the smoke break, that after he had the phone call from police, he had a discussion with his friends, Ray and Faye, about whether or not uh, he should speak to the police. So it's clear from the fact of that conversation, my submission, that he knew he had a choice not to. And that Ray and Faye had told him, you know, 
um, try to find out if there's going to be charges or whatever else, try to find out what position they're putting you in. Um, so that's his, his motivation, in fact, in, in attending the station. I suggest that's important in whether or not, uh, even though he's not cautioned, he knew what was going on. He's very guarded, I'd suggest, in the information that he's prepared to give to the police. When right at the outset of the interview, um, and this is in the condensed book at, at tab 7D, uh, page 125. So we see the bottom uh, quarter or so of this page, starting at line 134. Sergeant White says, very open-ended question. Um, so he's advised him we're investigating a homicide. It's Alan Beardall. Tell me everything you know about Al. And the last time you talked to him, saw him, dealt, spoke with him. And there we see... Uh, Mr. Tessier talk about, well, we've been doing the auctions. I met his uncle, Mike. Uh, I know Mimi, by the way, Mimi absolutely hates him. Uh, we do auction stuff and he was supposed to go to Winnipeg. And then he stops himself and he says, well, why don't you ask me some questions about him? Uh, so I, I'd suggest that what we see there is Mr. Tessier is trying not to say too much. He wants to find out what the police know before, uh, he discloses that he knows something or that maybe they don't or that they'll find significant. Um, again, it, as uh, Justice Moldaver, as you pointed out, um, we have this discussion about providing a consent DNA sample. Um, Mr. Tessier's first asked about that. He's told by Sergeant White clearly that uh, the reason why the police would want that is it, it would possibly eliminate him as being present at the scene. His first response to that is, uh, sure, why wouldn't I? Uh, he then starts to think, well, here's some reasons why my DNA might be there. Um, you know, I might have flicked a cigarette out as I was driving by. Uh, there might be some DNA from my hair or something on Al's clothes because we hung out together all the time. Uh, I used to buy him smokes. He used to buy me smokes. Uh, we'd smoke each other's smokes. Uh, and then after the, the break in the interview, uh, he goes out, uh, talks to Ray. He comes back in. He's changed his mind. And uh, Sergeant White essentially drops it at that point, right? It's not returned to Sergeant White's not pressuring him to change his mind. He leaves open that possibility at the very end of that uh, first conversation. But, but we do see, uh, I say that Mr. Tessier is um, making decisions about what he is and isn't prepared to share with the police. We also see in this interview that Mr. Tessier is repeatedly uh, trying to direct the police to other people they should be looking at as suspects. So um, I've already um, taken you to this where sort of right out of the gate, Mr. Tessier is suggesting, well, his ex-wife absolutely hates him. Um, when he, he talks then um, just the next page of the condensed book, 126. Uh, here's a discussion about when's the last time you saw Albert? All will start there. And Mr. Tessier's answer is, well, that was Thursday. He was packed up to go. He was heading off to Boness. He has a drug addiction. Uh, he goes and gets drugs. He is a drug dealer who lives out in Boness. He owed a lot of people different money, different amounts of money. Uh, he was supposed to be coming back. So um, 
you know, essentially a suggestion for Mr. Tessier. Well, he was heading off to see this drug dealer. His drug dealer is a shady character. He owed him money. So there would be a motive uh, for the drug dealer to have done something to him. Then he says again, after I last saw him, he's going to see his uncle, Mike. He, he returns when he's trying to suss out from Sergeant White whether or not uh, they believe that Al was stabbed. He says, you know, Al, Al carries a lot of knives. He's worked as a bouncer, as a bodyguard or whatever. Um, and then again, finally, um, at the end of this first interview, when they're out at the truck, um, Mr. Birdall says, you know, I... Um, I can get you some numbers, as I said, for some of uh, his, that's Al's, other not so good characters. So throughout the interview in my submission, we see Mr. Tessier uh, in control of the interview. He's there because he wants to be. Uh, he's there in the hopes that he can, A, find out what the police know and give them enough information uh, to deflect their attention uh, away from him. And that... Um, my submission supports the trial judge's conclusion um, that this was a voluntary statement, that the police didn't do anything um, and uh, didn't do anything or failed to do anything um, that affected uh, Mr. Tessier's decision. Again, it's clear from the, the voir dire evidence that um, Mr. Tessier is not ordered to attend the detachment. Uh, he's not told by the police ever that he has to cooperate with them for an interview. He's invited. He's not told that he doesn't have to. I, I concede that. Excuse me. <laughs> um, but really here, the, um, the ultimate issue, as the cases say, is was this his free choice. Was this a choice of his own will, Mr. Tessier's own will, to speak to the police? The trial judge found that it was. Um, and I, um, I would suggest to you that that um, finding is entitled to deference. Now, Mr. Um, Mr. Griner, can I'll I ask you a question? Because you just used the word I was wanting to put to you in as a question. Is it fair to say, then, that the voluntariness uh, inquiry is about the, question, the, the language about meaningful choice is really about the choice being a free choice, not necessarily an informed choice. And the reason it doesn't need to be an informed choice is because of the fact that the confessions rule, of course, would apply even pre-detention. We're talking about a very potentially very early stage. And so the, 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 the balance between the rights of the state to engage in laws enforcement and the rights of the individual at a very, at a very early stage, and it's a very different... Uh, constellation of values that are at stake at that early stage. So that's why the focus is only at, with respect to the freedom of choice rather than it being an informed choice. Obviously, after you get past the detention, then we are very much concerned about the choice being free and informed. But that's the sense in which the meaningful choice is used. Is that, is that a fair sort of summary of what you're saying? And I guess Whittle also factors into that because that confirms that the choice doesn't need to be a wise choice. It's not a wise or informed choice, it's just a one that's a free choice. Yes, I agree. The, the focus uh, in my submission is on whether this, this choice is, is a product of free will, whether it's a free choice. Um, that's a choice that's not being uh, forced upon the accused 
uh, by the actions of the state. And so uh, that's why detention has always figured strongly as a factor, the presence or absence of detention uh, has always figured strongly as a factor in whether or not that choice was free. Ultimately, it's a question, uh, uh, again, for the trial judge, whether something the police did or didn't do um, unfairly deprived the accused of the freedom uh, to make that choice. But we don't look to whether the choice was fully informed of the right to silence. That is, it's not a waiver analysis. Um, we look to whether the police did or failed to do something uh, which uh, deprived the accused of that free choice. Um, now, I want to come back to uh, a question that Justice Martin posed to you. What would be the harm of every time the police speak to anybody, anybody, giving them the caution at the outset? And I'm, I'm thinking that I'm working on the proposition. This is an assumption that, you know, most responsible citizens really want to help the police in their work. I'm thinking just as an example of my two grandfathers. They were quite simple, honest fishermen. So the, the, the RCMP shows up, and I guarantee the first thing would have said, how can I help you, officer? That's exactly what they would have said. And the officer says, by the way, before we start, I want you to know that you don't have to answer any questions and anything you say you know, may be used. And all of a sudden, what is... Uh, a citizen who's very desirous of assisting the police as a responsible member of the community is now alarmed, is now put on their guard, is now seeing the police officer in an adversarial situation, and is now fearful, perhaps, of a false accusation. Um, is that not a reason why cautioning persons in purely innocent circumstances can actually impair police work without assisting in any way in protecting the rights of persons who later become suspects? That was the question. Uh, I agree with the premise of the question. Um, and, and I'd suggest that is the reason why, uh, in, in perhaps more concrete or descriptive language, that's the basis for the hesitancy that the court's in Canada have traditionally had in requiring the police to caution everyone with whom they speak. Indeed, even the Court of Appeal here, of course, says that's not required. Um, it's not required because you risk needlessly alarming um, ordinary citizens um, and um, depriving or, or placing a hurdle in the way of, of the police obtaining valuable information. I'm um, mindful of my time here. And so one point that I do want to address in, my respondent, in, uh, in the respondent's uh, factum is the suggestion here um, that this isn't a matter of the trial judge weighing the absence of a caution in his analysis, but that um, he's essentially given it no attention and therefore has applied uh, an incorrect legal test or legal principle. Um, and so I do want to, um, with my remaining time, spend some time in the reasons of the trial judge uh, which I have uh, reproduced at tab three of the condensed book. Uh, and so I just want to um, begin on page 24, where the trial judge sets out, begins to set out the, the applicable legal principles. 
Um, the um, actually, let me begin on page 23 at, at paragraph 16. The Court of Appeal was quite critical, and my friend is critical of the trial judge. Uh, for this statement that the policy reason at paragraph 16, the policy reason for the right to silence and the confessions rule is to prevent the state from receiving false confessions. Um, so I certainly accept that's an incomplete statement of the policy reasons of the rule. There is also a fairness component, but where I um, take issue with um, the Court of Appeal it is uh, to suggest that, that in fact, the trial judge completely lost sight of that other principle. Um, and I say he didn't. So we see at paragraph 22, he quotes Singh to say that voluntariness is inextricably tied to the, the um, right to silence. Um, so he's, he's plainly in my submission mindful of that. And then when he comes um, at page um, 28, 27, 28 uh, of the condensed book, so paragraph 42, 43, now, when he's discussing the, the absence of the caution here, um, he quotes at length from um, Ontario Superior Court decision in Morrison. Uh, and Morrison says, and he reproduces this, that failure to caution is a circumstance to be considered, and that the failure to caution may, in the circumstances, effectively and unfairly deny the suspect the choice whether to speak or exercise the right to silence. In my submission, that's a correct statement of the law. And it shows that the trial judge is mindful of uh, the importance of considering the caution um, in connection with the right to silence. It's not something that he's overlooked. Again, he, he says that specifically in his own words at paragraph 45, um, the failure of the interrogating officer to caution such a suspect may in the circumstances of the case effectively and unfairly deny the suspect the choice, which is a factor courts must consider when deciding whether the suspect made the statement voluntarily. So, um, you know, to return perhaps Justice Brown to your, uh, your question uh, at the outset, would it have made a difference um, to Justice Yamauchi if he had found um, Mr. Tessie to be a suspect? Perhaps, perhaps not. He's clear that he has to consider this whether or not he finds uh, Mr. Tessie to be a suspect. Um, he goes on, of course, to find that he's not a suspect. Um, that's a factual finding, uh, which I suggest is entitled to deference. Uh, and it's correct in my submission, and, and the, the intervener attorneys general uh, elaborate on this somewhat more than I'll have time to, um, any more than I have, that uh, suspicion or detention, their presence or absence are relevant factors to the degree of uh, coercive power that's targeted at the individual, which is something that courts want to be especially alert to. Uh, in their voluntariness analysis. And Justice Yamauchi, I say, was alert to it. Um, to the extent that his reasons focus on whether or not there were grounds to consider Mr. Tessier a suspect, um, I'd say first, in fairness to the trial judge, uh, these reasons are responsive to the arguments made before him on the voir dire, which did focus on Worrell as the governing law, and then on whether Sergeant White ought to have considered Mr. Tessier to be a suspect. Um, it's also clear, and it doesn't um, excuse the trial judge from an obligation to get the law right, of course, but 
Uh, again, in fairness, this is a decision written under some time pressure. Arguments on voluntariness are made the afternoon of jury selection, and he's under some pressure to get a decision back before the close uh, of the Crown's case so that uh, if that evidence is admissible, it can be called. But ultimately, when we look at how the trial judge identifies the legal principles, it's clear in my submission that he um, has correctly focused on whether Mr. Tessier's ultimate decision to speak was the product of his free will. He's considered the absence of the caution. He finds it doesn't go to operating mind. I suggest that's correct. Um, it's not uh, a trick by police because there's no evidence here that for example, Sergeant White did consider Mr. Tessier a suspect and engineered a purportedly information gathering interview to try to um, paint him into a corner, as Mr. Tessier uh, colorfully puts it. Um, and ultimately, the trial judge's conclusion, I suggest, is that on the facts of this case, given um, Mr. Tessier's evident control over what information he is and isn't prepared to share, Mr. Tessier's own desire to find out information from the police. Uh, the fact that, again, he's free to leave halfway through the interview uh, for a cigarette. He comes back in at the end of the interview. He's, he's obviously not detained, nothing to suggest that he has to stay. Uh, he's invited, if he thinks of it, to provide further information. And then, in fact, within an hour, having presumably realized um, that he's got uh, some risk in, in his gun being missing, um, comes back to the station, manufactures this further encounter where he'll have police discover the gun is missing. Um, and again, how does he frame that when he comes back to the police? Al was sleeping in that bedroom. So if the gun's gone, it's been stolen probably by Al. Uh, and then who knows? I don't know what happened. Um, but evidently in my submission, he's... Um, concerned that police are going to connect that firearm to the murder. Uh, and then he'll have uh, some explaining to do. As he says again, uh, explicitly, he's aware of this. He says it to Sergeant White. You know, if it comes out that it's gone and I don't know about it now, that's going to look worse for me. And so I want it to be documented that I think it's there um, and that I'll, I'll be surprised if it's gone. Uh, I see that I've, I've nearly used my time, so unless um, there are any further questions, I, I thank the court for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. O. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. <clears throat> on, behalf, on behalf of the Attorney General of, of Ontario, I will address the issue of police caution, focusing on why it is a relevant factor, but not a requirement or precondition in determining voluntariness, especially when the person being interviewed is not detained. It is important to distinguish between those who are in detention and those who are not when they talk to the police, because people who are coerced to stay may also feel compelled to speak. They're more vulnerable than those who are not detained and the law gives them more protection. The rights to be informed of the reason for detention and the right to counsel under sections 10A and 10B of the Charter are triggered upon detention or arrest. And the law presumes that those who exercise that right 
will be informed by counsel of their right to silence. Typically, the police who give the detainee the right to counsel would also read the standard caution at the same time. You're not obliged to say anything, but what, whatever you do say may be given in evidence. This is a sensible approach because, as we said, a person who, is, who cannot simply walk away is at greater risk of potential police abuses. The issue in this case is not what, some, what should happen when someone is detained, but rather when the police are talking to a person, they have neither grounds to detain nor the intention to detain someone who is actually free to go. The law is clear that in these circumstances, there is no requirement to caution. As Alfactum points out, this is how the caution has developed historically, both in England and in Canada. It is what this court and other appellate courts have repeatedly affirmed, and it makes sense. It makes even more sense when we consider the recent Section 9 jurisprudence, which developed a more robust protection for psychological detention and arguably broadened the circumstances in which a person, a detention may be found. In this context, when we say that a person is not detained, it means that a reasonable person in that person's shoes would conclude that they are not compelled to stay, but free to leave. Now let's think about that. If someone is free to leave, but this person is staying and talking to the police, surely one available inference is that the person is speaking voluntarily, just as the person is staying voluntarily. This is an available inference, whether or not the police has cautioned the person. Now, of course, the entire circumstances would have to be examined. There might have been threats, inducements, oppression, or trickery that interfered with the person's freedom to speak. But that's exactly why the OICL factors focus on the objective conduct of the police, what the police had said or done, rather than the subjective state of mind of the speaker. Because as, as this court held in sync, the protection afforded by the confessions rule has always been intended to guard against the potential abuse of the state of the superior powers over an individual suspect. Now, earlier, Justice Jamal and Justice Kassirar, uh, you asked about um, the meaning of meaningful choice and the difference between an informed choice and a free choice. Um, in my submission, the context in which the Herbert case was decided is, is significant, bearing in mind that this is a case where the accused had asserted his right to silence. And then the state, through some trickery, um, extracted a confession uh, by way of an undercover, officer, uh, undercover police officer. Although in that decision, Justice McLaughlin used the word meaningful choice and informed choice and free choice almost interchangeably, notably, she said um, at page 177 at the Supreme Court uh, review version, she said that I should not be taken as suggesting that the right 
to make an informed choice whether to speak to the authorities or to remain silent necessitates a particular state of knowledge on the suspect's part over and above the basic requirement that he possess an operating mind. The charter does not place on the authorities and the courts the impossible task of subjectively gauging whether the suspect appreciates the situation and the alternatives. Now, last Friday, this court heard the Crown's appeal in La France, and my colleague, Mr. Garg, proposed a bright line rule for detention as part of Ontario submissions. I want to explain how Ontario submissions on detention fit together with those on voluntariness. First, I note that the detention caution proposed as an element of the bright line rule in La France is not identical to the, caution, to the standard caution in the voluntariness context. The detention caution being proposed can be very simple, as short as four words. You're free to go. But the standard caution in use for voluntariness purposes is somewhat more involved. Second, Ontario argued in La France that the detention caution is not a precondition to finding that a detention has not occurred. Similarly, I'm arguing that the standard caution should not be a precondition to finding a statement voluntary. Finally, a bright line rule arguably is arguably justified in the detention context because the charter imposes a positive duty on police that requires them to know with some certainty when a detention occurs. By contrast, this court has repeatedly emphasized that the voluntariness inquiry is, ne is necessarily contextual and that it is choose strict and rigid rules because they are bound to be over or under inclusive. Rather, the entire circumstances must be considered and in that context, the presence or absence of a caution is only one among many relevant factors. Finally, I want to close my submissions by offering two reasons as to why this court should reject the proposal by the CCLA to make the caution a precondition to finding voluntariness. Those reasons are history and reality. First, the CCLA's proposal is a radical transformation of the confessions rule as we know it, without any precedent in history. It isolates and elevates one factor among many <clears throat> and deems it conclusive in rendering a statement involuntary, even though this court has repeatedly emphasized that a contextual analysis of all of the relevant circumstances are required. Second, the reality is that people do make voluntary statements to the police, even in the absence of a caution. This court observed in Oikel that few suspects will spontaneously confess to a crime. Why? Well, perhaps they know, as many of us do, that when speaking to a police officer, whatever you do say may be given in evidence. The confessions rule must enable the search for truth in balancing the, its twin goals. In my submission, this court struck the right balance in Oikel and in Sync, and we ask respectfully that you man, maintain this delicate balance. Thank you very much. Check to any further questions. Those are my submissions. Thank you, sir. Mr. McGuinty. Good morning, Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. I want to I start by, by slightly reframing um, 
really what's before the court. So the, the appellant started by by saying that there are a few broad principles that are that are accepted, uh, and of those are the fact that the voluntariness rule has two um, two principles that underpin it. So the first, obviously, is reliability of confessions, and the second is considerations that affect the integrity of justice. So fairness concerns, and it, I want to start my submissions by saying that. What we're really talking about today, the absence of a caution, um, what we're talking about is a fairness concern. And the way New Brunswick views it is that there's tremendous utility in upholding the suspect, non-suspect distinction. And the reason is that the two silos that underpin the voluntariness rule, they, they're generally in practice, they're assessed independently. So you look at some factors that are going to speak to reliability. And then you're going to look at factors that are going to speak to fairness concerns. And in, in OICL, the court actually identifies this at paragraph 69. And so the court says that issues such as threats, promises, and oppressive circumstances, those are ones that are going to speak to reliability. And then you have some speak only to fairness. And a perfect example of a consideration that speaks only to fairness is the police trigger component that was upheld in OICL. So in Oikel, the court says that this is not a factor that affects reliability, but it's a factor that can affect the fairness, the fairness of the accused and impact the administration of justice as a whole. And I think there's, there's utility in finding an analogy between the police trickery and the absence of a caution, because both speak to fairness. And the, the respondent in the respondent's submission, he, he essentially concedes that Fairness is the, is the goal that underpins the police caution. And so in OICL, the court endorses a very high standard to exclude a statement based on police trickery. And my submission is that the reason there's such a high standard required is because what we're really talking about is excluding a reliable statement based on fairness concerns. And that's an exceptional remedy. It's a very high standard uh, and it's warranted because it's such an exceptional remedy. And so that's why New Brunswick says there has to be maintaining the suspect non-suspect distinction is important because it allows the court essentially to have a useful measuring stick as to where is it that we're crossing the line into unfairness. And so our, our main submission is that where there is evidence that the person being interviewed is not a suspect, there are no fairness concerns that are triggered. And in fact, fairness concerns that are owed to society as a whole, those dominantly favor the idea that no weight should be given to the absence of a caution where the person is not a suspect. Now, when the person can objectively be branded a suspect, what happens is that the absence of a caution then becomes a relevant consideration, but it can't be determinative. And what we see often in, in the decisions in lower courts is that, is that this issue of a, of a caution, the absence of a caution becomes the main issue. There, in, the, in New Brunswick's condensed book at tab three, I cite cases where the only issue is the absence of a police caution. 
those are issues. Those are cases such as the Olin decision in New Brunswick, the Gill decision out of Ontario, which was just released uh, a month ago, a Superior Court decision, the Garnier decision out of Nova Scotia, and this one. So there are these cases where the entire voluntary now voluntariness analysis revolves around the absence of a police caution and that's why it's so important that there's clear guidelines around when and how it should may i interrupt you here in in pursuit of a clear guideline you 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 rest your test on suspect no suspect but when i go into the jurisprudence i can glean from Singh, Worrell, Morrison, J.R., Hingham, Dazzle, at least six different definitions of who is a suspect. And so may I ask you, which among all of those uh, competing lines of authority you're endorsing for who is a suspect? So if I could take the court to uh, tab one of New Brunswick's uh, condensed book, and it's page two, paragraph four. What I've tried to do at paragraph four, um, page two of tab one, is distill what New Brunswick thinks, because you're right, Justice Martin, there are numerous tests that are outlined in the jurisprudence. And so what New Brunswick proposes is one that, that follows Worrell closely, but is not necessarily identical to the test in Worrell. And so we propose that the, 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 the trial court has to look at, were there objectively discernible facts? known to the interviewing officer at the time of the interview, which would lead a reasonably confident investigator to conclude the interviewee is implicated in the criminal offense being investigated. So that's the one we proposed. But we set out in our condensed book, essentially cautions that need to go with that test. And this speaks somewhat to Justice Brown's uh, question at the outset of the hearing. But we say that the first thing that, that trial judges need to be very cautious about is, is the idea of hindsight. We can't look back with hindsight and say that the, office, that the person was a suspect. We have to go based on the objectively discernible facts known by the police at the time. The second caution that New Brunswick suggests is that pointed questions alone cannot brand someone a suspect. And the reason is that we're trying to balance society's interest and society's right in the investigation of crime. And society has a right to know that police are asking pointed questions. They're, they're entitled to and they're, inspe- they're, they're expected to. The third caution we propose is that leeway has to be given to, to police officers. And the reason I say this is that this case is the perfect example of why leeway is required. In the early stages of investigation, when there are no suspects identified, the police need to, to be able to govern themselves accordingly. Things are moving fast and they're learning information at a very fast pace. And the last caution is, is somewhat broad, but we say that we, you have to look at the, the stage of the investigation. So when, it's in its, when the investigation's in its infancy, that supports the notion that there are no suspects. Now, The reason we propose this test and and these cautions is that we have to keep in mind that, again, as I said earlier, we're talking about fairness concerns. So we have to assess whether the police conduct undermined fairness so severely that a trial court is going to deprive a jury of reliable evidence 
And so that's why New Brunswick says the bar has to be high and a good starting point is, well, let's first determine if the interviewee was a suspect. If they were, then this factor, the absence of a caution, becomes part of the analysis. But the weight to be given to this factor depends entirely on whether it really undermined trial fairness and really uh, undermines the repute of the administration of justice. So that, that, that's really the, the, the primary fairness concern. Now, I want to briefly touch on, uh, Justice Martin, a question you had earlier in the hearing, which was why not, why not just caution everyone as a practical matter? You've already heard submissions about the fact that it will stifle police investigations and New Brunswick supports that position. But there's another reason why the court needs to dig a bit deeper, because what happens if the court brings about this bright line rule that everyone is required to get a caution? What happens in a case where a police officer inadvertently uh, or maybe even negligently fails to give the caution? So if there is no caution, a trial judge can't just automatically assume because there's no caution, the reliable statement needs to be excluded. It's still going to come down to, well, to what extent was fairness compromised? And so we really, that's really our focus that the, the end goal of, of assessing this factor is to what extent was fairness compromised? Subject to any questions, Chief Justice, those are New Brunswick submissions. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break. 15 minutes. Thank you. The court, la court. Please be seated. Pavel Milcherek. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. Prior to the right to access counsel, for interviewees to have the equal protection of the law, they must have equal and accurate understanding of the law that protects them. The use of statements obtained in this time frame in a trial before access to counsel implicates trial fairness, which has been recognized as an animating principle of the confessions rule by this court. Unfortunately, the reality is that most people do not know the precise limits of police authority or their own rights as recognized in Therens and Lee uh, this problem becomes even more acute in more vulnerable communities, such as those who have limited formal education or new are newcomers to Canada or those that have substance abuse issues or mental health disorders. Most people, and particularly these vulnerable groups, need some information to have the benefit of an equal basic understanding of the right to silence before any entitlement to access counsel fills the void. A, voluntary, a voluntariness test that is built upon a foundation that assumes an equal and accurate understanding of the right to silence amongst all interviewees is one that systemically preserves a vulnerable state of ignorance in order to facilitate the gathering of admissions by police. This is precisely the sort of test employed by the trial judge in this case, which caused the Alberta Court of Appeal to call his assessment uh, at paragraph 46, an impoverished understanding of the modern confessions rule. This uh, inequity built on ignorance is what a police caution is designed to remedy. 
And to be clear, the respondent submits that a police caution contains the following essential elements, although the wording is not as important. Uh, the interviewee has a right to remain silent, which can't be used against them in court proceedings. And any statements made can be used in court proceedings. The ultimate question on this appeal is how much ignorance of these principles should be preserved to allow police to engage in what the respondent calls unfair investigations to collect admissions against interest. The appellant and Crown intervener submissions on voluntariness tend to decrease the importance of the police caution as a factor. In the case of the appellant, by equating giving a full weighing to the absence of a caution with a waiver requirement. In the case of the Crown interveners, by providing increasingly complicated spectra along which it will be given progressively less weight. In this way, the ignorance of people in an adversarial position with the state will be weaponized into a mechanism of extracting admissions against interest with less fear of after the fact judicial intervention. The appellant's position on detention uh, in a nutshell seeks to turn uh, police station interviews into a silo with law that is different from the principles of psychological detention outlined in Grant. If their position on both of these issues is permitted to succeed by this honorable court, the people who will suffer from the resulting sphere of permissible unfairness will be those who have the least understanding of the justice system. Meanwhile, those who are experienced criminals or have the advantages of money or higher education will tend to be less affected by the lack of this caution. The court has uh, the outline of oral argument. I intend to proceed in order of the written document and my colleague, Ms. Sitar, will address you on the detention issue. Uh, I just wanna start here just to address some of the questions that I've heard, hopefully, uh, before getting on to uh, more prepared submissions. Um, uh, Mr. Justice Kazer uh, asked whether uh, a meaningful or active choice is um, something that has application in the, in the pre-detention uh, phase uh, of interactions with the police as much as it does afterwards. And uh, I, I would simply answer this uh, as best I can with a reference to Singh that a uh, paragraph 39, uh, where the court says, for reasons uh, I have already expressed, the confessions rule effectively subsumes the constitutional right to silence in circumstances when an obvious person in authority is interrogating a person who is in detention, because in, in, the, in such circumstances, the two tests are functionally equivalent. Now, I do see the word detention in there, but uh, the test I would submit is, is functionally equivalent, but the importance of information to this choice is arguably more important before detention because there has been uh, no right to counsel. Um, and I think that has some uh, reference uh, in one of the intervener's submissions as well. Uh, Mr. Justice Moldaver uh, commented that um, Mr. Tessier may have made a meaningful choice because he did not give his DNA. Um, I would 
I would submit that this was the only thing he was given a caution of any form about in uh, the statement that was ultimately admitted at trial. Uh, the fact that he didn't do that, he didn't give his DNA, uh, proves why he needed information about his rights. At this point, he only had access to one friend. That's the gentleman who was waiting in the truck outside. And the only evidence uh, of discussion was about the DNA. Uh, and of course, Ray, his friend, is certainly not a lawyer. And sir, would you say about uh, what I will call the, the gun incident, if you allow me to call it this way, what would you say, uh, would you say that uh, Mr. Tessie was forced to ask Sergeant White to drive with him to Calgary uh, to accompany him? Was he forced to do that? Uh, he certainly wasn't uh, forced uh, to do so. Um, the connection between the first uh, statement and the second statement, I would submit, is uh, rather undeniably made, perhaps in my, in my friend's submissions, where Sergeant White invites uh, any further information to be provided uh, right at the end of the first interview. And of course, the time between the two things uh, was very minimal. Um, so the one and a half hour interview ended. And then uh, after a few voicemails and failed contacts, you have a, a 510 interview resuming. So uh, in the sense of being forced uh, through uh, physical uh, pressure of some sort, I would submit Obviously not, but the, there's a continuing interview I would submit uh, from the beginning here uh, to the end. Yeah, but who, who triggered the second interview? Uh, so, uh, as a matter of um, as a it's a matter of interpretation, I would submit uh, depending on whether you consider that uh, nothing has changed. Uh, between the first and second interview in terms of Mr. Uh, Tessier being given any further uh, caution or rights. Um, in terms of physically triggering the second interview, obviously uh, his reattendance starts the physical encounter and, and the discussion. After two, after two messages saying, can I talk to you? I mean, he was insisting on it. He was, he was clamoring for it. Yes, uh, I, would, I would agree that he wanted to engage uh, with the officer, but I, I would submit, Mr. Justice Rowe, that this isn't divorced in any way from uh, the fact that he was invited to do so um, by the officer and uh, that he still has no uh, real conception of voluntariness, uh, of, of the caution, rather, uh, I suppose the most uh, the most um, telling uh, the most telling utterances on, on that point actually come right at the end, um, which is uh, of the admitted uh, interview, which is when uh, Mrs. when Sergeant White instructs him on on the caution incorrectly. Uh, he tells him that only what he says going forward from this point could be used against him. Uh, Mr. Tessier tries to clarify that, 
so that he understands it and then he accepts it. So that is a clear indication that the lack of caution is playing a role from the beginning of the encounter all the way to that point. Mr. Milzarek, can I ask you a question just before, just sorry, just before you get going on your argument, just something just to understand better the position you're taking in respect of the trial judge's finding that Mr. Tessier was not a suspect. Are you arguing that that was, uh, that finding was flawed, it was a reviewable error, that it was a palpable and overriding error? Or are you saying more, I'm reading from paragraph 28 of your factum, that the finding is sort of irrelevant because the law doesn't recognize a suspect witness distinction or shouldn't recognize. Which is it? I mean, in, in, it doesn't seem to me that you're saying it's a palpable and overriding error. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Justice Kesser, I would say that actually on, on that specific point, uh, the respondent uh, takes three positions uh, rather unhelpfully uh, to your question. Uh, first, and primarily in, in defending the decision of the Alberta Court of Appeal, uh, I would submit that it, it, it is not a relevant consideration, the suspect divide. And I'll get into that uh, and flesh it out more fully in the submissions. Uh, second, uh, because uh, of the facts that the trial judge found, uh, the ob- objective reasonableness uh, uh, of, of whether those facts known to the police officer uh, supported that suspicion level, uh, I would submit is reviewable on a standard of correctness per dis- the decision in McKenzie, uh, for example, the uh, reasonable suspicion standard for a police dog search. So those those things are, that is reviewable on a correctness standard. And I would submit that the facts known to officer, uh, to, the, to Sergeant White support objectively that he uh, had uh, s- such suspicion, at least on the test in Hyam that was applied by uh, the trial judge. And finally, I would submit that there is a palpable and overriding error um, because even in the submissions, even in the uh, evidence of Sergeant White, he admits uh, that at the beginning of the 510 interview, so the reattendance uh, with uh, reference to the possibly missing firearm, at that point, he called him a person of interest and he defined that. And so that's a person whose uh, comings and goings have, have to be accounted for. So somebody who he has to pay attention to. So when you couple that, his definition with the test in Hyam that was applied by the trial judge, I would submit that there is a palpable and overriding error there, that he at least, uh, for, for Sergeant White, there was at least a connection at that point in time uh, wh- where he ought to have cautioned, if that is the test. Okay, and, and that's, that's notwithstanding, I mean, it was not until, when was he actually arrested? 2015, it was yes. many, many years later. When the, I guess yeah. it was when the DNA was found on the cigarette butt. So, so there was a long period of inaction here, if notwithstanding this suspicion that you, that you, uh, that you point to. I mean, I, I note that in your factum, you, you say that whether or not Sergeant White subjectively perceived Mr. Tessier to be a suspect, it doesn't, 
determine the impact of the absence of a caution for voluntariness. And that, I understand, is your that's your sort of principal point, right? The, yes, that's the core position of the respondent. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Justice Rowe asked, uh, "What would be the harm of a uh, of a caution at the outset?" Uh, noting that uh, people may be put off by the words of a caution, uh, and so the respondent uh, would concede that uh, perhaps the wording needs some work um, in terms of the information that has to be conveyed. Uh, it, it's not that the police are targeting the person. It's rather that they, like everybody else, has the right not to speak to the police uh, and that that silence can't be used against them. Uh, so that's the essential sort of information that uh, needs to be conveyed, but they don't need to be put on notice through the language somehow that they are a potential target. Uh, certainly people who are just witnesses, I would submit, wouldn't take that. Uh, kind of caution to suggest to them that they shouldn't be cooperative with the well, police. Well, I'm sorry, I, I'm not sure about that. If my neighbor is, there's a break in my neighbor's residence and the police comes to me and says, well, you know, we want to investigate the crime and um, you, you want to give information, but I have to tell you that anything that you will say, you know, can be used in court and so on and so forth. For me, maybe I will think that I, will, I won't take the chance, even if I have nothing to do with the crime, but maybe somebody would make a false, a false claim against me, one, one other neighbors, for instance. In other words, are you sure, really, that that has no chilling effect on any possible witnesses or person who want to help and cooperate with the police? Uh, many of the cases, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, sh uh, show... Um, that even after uh, being given a caution, people who are actual accused persons, actual suspects, ultimately convicted, still talk to the police. Um, and so even the decisions in this area are sort of replete with that sort of encounter. Um, Mr. Singh, just as an example. But that, that's... Uh, but, that, go ahead. Sorry, finish. Uh, but turning to the idea of a, of a mere witness, I, I would submit that um, it's not, I'm not saying that there is no possible chilling effect. I'm just saying that it, it is overstated in the sense of uh, uh, the expectation that everybody in that circumstance would just clam up and not talk to the police. Uh, it isn't all the way over there. I suppose, on the position of respondent. The, the Court of Appeal, um, although they do, they do state a rather muscular version of the confessions rule, they, they also, and this might be seen as a tension in their judgment, but they, they say, look, um, you know, this, this isn't to be taken to extremes, but and there's no bright line, but consider the nature of police questioning and whether the interviewee is seen as a suspect. So I'm wondering if, if really you need to make the argument that, <clears throat> you know, we have a murder in an apartment building and, and, and every neighbor needs to 
have the caution given to them right away uh, because there's nothing to, to consider them a, a suspect. Um, but that in the course of an interview, such as in the course of the first interview, well, I realize you say it's all one interview, but the, the first installment, let's say, with Sergeant White, um, the questioning becomes more adversarial. There's an invitation to the interviewee to incriminate himself or herself. At that point, the risk of self-incrimination is objectively heightened. And so it's perhaps in that narrower circumstance, albeit pre-detention circumstance, that you might want to argue that, that a caution should be given. I, thank you for that, uh, Mr. Mr. Justice Brown. Uh, the I think that it indeed is the core submission here. Uh, I've tried to actually encapsulate what uh, what we're asking a police officer to think about uh, by reference to what we say is the test. And so uh, it, in, in answer to the question, I would say that a police officer merely needs to ask themselves the following question to determine if they should caution. Is there a risk that my question or request may result in an incriminating response? And if the answer is yes, they should caution. So whether that's uh, the framing of the question, are you the killer? Are you a murderer? Or uh, it's the uh, circumstances in which uh, they find themselves further on in, a, in, a, in an encounter and in an interview where the obvious next question may tend to incriminate whether it's phrased that way or not. So in terms of so the... So like where, where were you on the night of the 13th that you couldn't ask that without a caution? Yes. Uh, the question... So, so, Mr. Justice Kazer, I would say that that would be my answer to that question. And it's probably best uh, discernible from what happened here, which is page four of the uh, transcript of the questioning of Mr. Uh, um, Mr. Tessier by Sergeant White, when his testimony had indicated that he was trying to get a victimology, so uh, comings and goings. Uh, and background of the this deceased, he asks him, what kind of truck do you have? And the answer is a Ford F-150. And so what we do know happened with that information, even before that first interview was over, is that other police officers drove to where he said he parked it at his friend's house they checked the tires to see if it was a possible match. So yes, I, I would say that that question it, it is something that, that puts, the, it puts the person's uh, liberty at risk objectively. What uh, about a question like a police officer asking, when is the last time you saw the deceased? When is the last time you saw the deceased? I would think it would depend on uh, 
more facts in terms of where in the interview that comes and what is in the knowledge of the police already about the situation. So I would agree that there's going to be uh, litigation, but um, there's litigation already about these issues. Um, what I would su submit, Madam Justice, is that uh, what we're trying to do in the respondent's position is make the point at which somebody should be cautioned uh, something relevant to whether the person will speak. So the type of question or the um, situational uh, context for the question rather than something that is solely in the mind of the police officer which something like my level uh, the police officer's level of suspicion or perhaps the point uh, at which the investigation is these things have no relation to whether a person will actually speak and whether they're making a meaningful choice because those things are not in their minds and not shared with them doesn't your approach sort of really just look at one side of the ledger, which is the interests of the witness or the target suspect, uh, rather than balancing that with the interest, the societal interest in having police be able to do legitimate law enforcement investigation? I mean, the whole point of investigation is to get potentially incriminating information, uh, but we, we've, we strike the constitutional balance at the point where um, a person is detained or whether they reasonably could be detained rather than at an earlier stage when they just might say something that would incriminate themselves. So how do you, how do you deal with the other side of the constitutional balance, which is the interest in law enforcement? So in terms of the, Mr. Justice Jamal, the interest uh, with uh, law enforcement, uh, I would submit that um, there is uh, it is overstated in in terms of the application of the rule in this particular case. So uh, a police caution was always a concern per Boudreaux. Uh, failure to provide one to a person who turns out to be an accused before questioning uh, is always a risk. Uh, the advice about suspects in Singh was not a bright line rule. So... Um, the point at which police objectively create a risk of loss of liberty is a good place for a caution precisely because it distinguishes between mere witnesses and those who might through uh, the question or situation be at risk of providing inculpatory statements. Uh, again, the question proposed for police officers is a simple one. Uh, is there a risk? My question or request may uh, result in an incriminating response. So it doesn't take a lot of time for them to consider that. And nothing, in the, nothing proposed by the respondent would uh, prevent the police from asking anyone they wanted questions. Uh, indeed, the only risk they would run by asking questions that might incriminate someone without a caution is the risk of exclusion of the answers they get from a subsequent trial. If that person turns out to be the accused. People who are mere witnesses would have no reason to stop answering questions, I would submit. The provision uh, of a caution takes seconds. 
taking this time would not prevent police from properly investigating. And also, I would urge the court to keep in mind the decision, uh, the decision of this court in Patterson. Uh, the utterances, which may not be voluntary uh, in the sense of a caution, could still be used uh, to gather other evidence, search warrants and other uh, types of investigation. So ultimately, uh, Mr. Justice Jamal, I would submit that it's fair to place the risk of exclusion at the feet of police who exercise an informed choice to caution or not. Police are trained for and in control of the interview environment most of the time. If they are objectively eliciting, attempting to elicit a confession, they should not be permitted to insulate those efforts from later judicial oversight by claiming the interviewee uh, was a witness and not a suspect. So turning to the core submission, um, the respondent submits that voluntariness of a statement to to police is dependent on whether the interviewee made a meaningful choice to speak at the moment when their liberty was objectively put at risk by the actions or questions of the police. Ultimately, this is the core of the Alberta Court of Decision about why the trial judge in this case was wrong in law. A meaningful choice is an informed choice. For most, that information will come from the police caution about the right to silence. For others, it can come from experience, education, prior contact with counsel. As stated in, in Horvath but, and by Justice Watt Morrill, a meaningful choice implies uh, an awareness of what is at stake in making um, an awareness of what is at stake in making a statement to a person in authority. The purpose of the standard police caution, as noted in Horvath by Justice Beats, is to impart the awareness of what is at stake in an interview. The awareness of what is at stake discussed by Justice Beats and Justice Watt is not a perfect uh, standard of knowledge of the case to meet, nor is it a standard of capacity to make the best rational decision. It's merely a standard that involves basic or fundamental uh, knowledge of the rules of engagement in an interview with a police officer. Whittle is often used, as was the case with the trial judge, to suggest that the full mental requirement of a voluntary statement is merely a limited degree of cognitive ability to understand what the accused is saying and to comprehend that the evidence may be used in proceedings against the accused. And I would submit this is an erroneous line of reasoning. Um, but in this line of reasoning, we know an involuntary statement when we see one because of threats, inducements, oppressive circumstances, um, or tr police trickery that would shock the conscience of the community. However, when it comes to knowing a voluntary statement when we see one, we are merely looking for a person that understands their words and is capable of understanding a police caution. So I would submit that this approach is wrong for a few reasons. Whittle is a case about mental capacity to make an active choice or the operating mind. It's generally not a case about what informs that decision or makes it meaningful. Justice Sapinka in Whittle, at page 932 of the decision, listed a lack of information as one method of police depriving a suspect of the ability to make an, an effective choice. 
remarking on the uh, beats awareness of consequences quote from Horvath, Justice Zapinka stated, uh, it does not imply a higher degree of awareness than knowledge of what the accused is saying and that he is saying it to police officers who can use it to his detriment at page 936. So knowledge of the police officer's ability to use this to his detriment is part of this. This implies uh, a police caution even there. At the end of the quote uh, from Whittle, uh, to comprehend that the evidence may be used in proceedings against the accused. That reference relates to capacity part, that reference relates capacity partially to an ability to understand a police caution. It also presupposes the provision of a caution before a statement is sought. So in other words, Whittle does not stand for the proposition that a person who has capacity or an operating mind automatically has the information they need to make a meaningful choice to provide a statement to police. Whittle suggests that a person with mental health difficulties is capable of providing a voluntary statement. It does not stand for a proposition that a person who is merely capable will make a meaningful choice or provide a to provide a voluntary statement simply by virtue of their mental capacity. Understood properly, Whittle leaves room for the proposition that a person who passes the operating mind test will nevertheless fail to make a meaningful choice if they do not receive a police caution. Ultimately, a level playing field is a premise from which uh, other statements defining a coerced or induced confession in the jurisprudence gain their meaning. For a person's will to be overborne for example, they must have a will to begin uh, to refuse to begin with. Uh, knowledge of information contained within a police caution is what I would submit creates such a will. Once a person understands that they have a legally protected right to choose silence, they can accurately gauge how much effort they are willing to expend or how much pressure and discomfort they are prepared to endure to maintain it in their circumstances. Without that level playing field of knowledge, any choice to provide a statement is not considered or based on an understanding of its ramifications. In other words, it's not a meaningful choice. And in support of this, I, I, I would point to Boudreaux as further authority for the proposition that the test for voluntariness must include consideration of the provision of a police caution. Justice Kerwin's reasons in Boudreaux clearly established that a police caution does not by itself guarantee a statement is voluntary, nor does it a failure to provide one guarantee that a statement is involuntary. However, his reasons also clearly state the presence or absence of the warning will be a factor, and in many cases, an important one. The only way the presence or absence of a warning will be a factor in all cases, as, um, as suggested, is if the provision, if its provision or alternatives that substitute to impart the information on the interviewee are fundamental to a full contextual analysis of voluntariness in a positive sense. When you couple this with the decisions in Theron's and Lee about what the average member of the public would be expected to know about the precise limits of police authority, 
I would suggest the informational gap for an average member of the public to get to a meaningful choice becomes readily apparent. The gap has to be fixed in the individual case by some means to ensure a person is making a meaningful decision to provide a statement. And so this is roughly consistent with the conception in WRW um, of the caution as a threshold question. I would call it as a I would call it a contextual analysis threshold. So there is no method of contextually weighing whether a meaningful choice was made where it is unknown if the interviewee had some knowledge of the right to silence and the evidentiary use of utterances. Um, in Hyam, uh, the failure to provide a police caution was uh, characterized as an inducement. Um, in essence, this is, a, this is conceptualized as an underselling of the importance of the choice to provide a statement or not. Uh, addressing the appellant's oral submissions, uh, there's two core submissions before you today as to why the Alberta Court of Appeal was in error. Below, in the first, uh, the appellant alleges that the Alberta Court of Appeal was incorrect uh, to focus on subjective knowledge of the, of the accused, uh, likening the inquiry into this knowledge of, of, of the caution to a subjective analysis uh, instead of the modified objective analysis that's required. The uh, simple answer to this is that while knowledge of the right to silence sounds like a subjective inquiry, it's not. For the purposes of voluntariness, the modified reasonable person includes all relevant individual characteristics of the accused. And that's a reference to Lee at paragraph 121. These uh, characteristics include things like what in Grant was called their level of sophistication. The knowledge of the right to silence, independent of the caution or through provision of the caution, is just one of those relevant individual characteristics. So the in inquiry into this knowledge is not somehow a transformation of the approach to a subjective one. Paragraph uh, 35 of the Alberta Court of Appeal decision, the court specifically notes that the test is a modified objective test to determine if the person uh, was able to make a voluntary decision. Nothing in the words of the court subsequently shows that they did otherwise. The appellant also suggests that the Alberta Court of Appeal placed undue weight on the caution here. And uh, the respondent submits that the proper weight to a police caution depends on what you think the purpose of a police caution is. Uh, for the appellant, it is, uh, I would submit incorrectly, merely to provide some counterweight to the coercion of an arrest or near arrest. Uh, contrarily, I would submit it's the foundation of a contextual understanding of the person's will to provide a statement or not. Uh, consequently, I would submit the Alberta Court of Appeal accorded this factor its due weight. Um, but what, what does the Alberta Court of Appeal actually say? So paragraphs 55, 56 encapsulate why, they're inter why they intervened.
the key takeaways from these two paragraphs I would submit are this. The trial judge's analysis focused on whether it was reasonable for the police not to provide a caution. He based this on the so-called suspect rule of thumb. He thereby transformed that advice in saying into a legal test. They say that the question before him was not whether police needed to administer a caution, but whether Mr. Tessier made a meaningful decision to provide a statement in the absence of a caution. This includes an implied awareness of what is at stake in speaking to police or declining to assist them. With that considered, did the Crown prove voluntariness beyond a reasonable doubt? And so this is not the creation of a waiver requirement as suggested by the Crown appellant. It's the recognition of of the knowledge contained in the caution as a factor, as stated in Boudreaux in the analysis, and a conclusion that the trial judge explicitly excluded this from their consideration by applying the test in Haim. And so I would submit that they were correct in concluding that the trial judge excluded the non-provision of caution from his voluntariness analysis. Uh, That is the only reasonable conclusion I would submit from the following statements in his judgment. He began by saying that the only only policy reason for the right to silence was to prevent false confessions at paragraph 16. Obviously, that's not the case. Uh, This undermines the fairness and repute of the administration of justice factors recognized in Hebert, which which underlie the need for a caution uh, in the first place. When considering the caution, he stated that he agreed with the test first articulated in Hyam for a police officer to ask for a statement without cautions or counsel advice at paragraph 49 of his decision. This is a test designed to exclude the caution from consideration on voluntariness. He then outlined this test, which requires the officer to have a reasonable belief at the time of the interrogation that the person giving this statement is not culpably involved in the event under under investigation, paragraph 49 still. He then says, this court finds that Staff Sergeant's belief was objectively reasonable. Thus, the test in Hyam there is uh, for taking a statement without cautions or counsel advice was met. And so that means further analysis of the caution was unnecessary. And tellingly, he never gauged the effect of the lack of caution on the reasonable person in the position of the accused. So he does talk about it, but he talks about it in order to exclude it from from the full test. So the facts here. Um, I'd like to just turn to them briefly, but the facts underlying the need for a caution in this case, considering um, all of the uh, all the facts in, in the actual uh, statements and what information was known, are important because I, I would say a risk of a risk to the liberty interest of the accused was created by Sergeant White well before a caution was given. Objectively. Uh, the Hyam threshold for an uncautioned statement was passed well before a caution was given. 
And subjectively, there's the admission by Sergeant White that uh, he actually had a suspicion that was higher, that would meet the Haim threshold uh, well before caution was given. So in terms of the objective risk to liberty for Mr. Tessier, uh, Sergeant White was not engaged in general information gathering in this interview. He was using what he knew of the offense to establish if Mr. Tessier was a plausible suspect and gathering potential evidence from him. He admitted to knowing the following prior to the two or very early in the, ver in the, in the first interview. He knew Tessier was the last person to see the deceased alive. He knew the deceased was found on the shoulder of a road with severe trauma to the head and a blanket partially covering the body. He knew tire tracks, footprints, cigarette butts, and blood spatter had been found nearby. He knew the deceased and Mr. Tessier were best friends, spending a lot of time together. He knew there was a conflict between the deceased and Mr. Tessier involving a car, and the deceased had a plan to leave for Winnipeg. Finally, he knew that Mr. Tessier was in Didsbury the day after the homicide, which was closer than his home address to where the deceased was found. All this knowledge objectively placed Mr. Tessier within the pool of potential people who could be responsible uh, for the death at the time of his interview. With this knowledge, Sergeant White and the RCMP engaged in conduct that was aimed at gathering potentially inculpatory evidence from Mr. Tessier. Without listing all of it, the following are worth noting. As the interview, as the interview progressed with no caution being given. On page four, uh, I've referred to this already uh, of the transcript. Is, he asked Mr. Tessier what kind of vehicle he drives. Uh, obviously, this question is aimed at seeing if he was a potential suspect as police had tire marks on the scene. He answers it's Ford F-150 and he tells him where it is. So using that information coming out of the interview room, police attend at that vehicle in an attempt to obtain derivative evidence to see if uh, tires are a possible match to scene impressions. And before the end of the interview, they know it's a possible match. It's within the types of vehicles that could have made it types of tires that could have made these. Uh, during the interview, they check his shoes again to see if they match footwear impressions on scene. White admitted to asking questions calculated to produce uh, a confession in questioning. He asked for explanations for why DNA, Mr. Tessie's DNA would be on scene with the body. He asked cross-examination style questions to force admissions or provable lies about the DNA on the cigarettes, if there was there. Uh, he admitted to appealing to Mr. Tessier's conscience to get a confession. He told Mr. Tessier he didn't believe uh, his denials about the murder. All of this is during the first interview. And at the beginning of the 5.10 p.m. interview, police attempted, accepted an invitation to go to Mr. Tessier's home to, to conduct a search for a, for a gun possibly rela related to their case. All these actions of the police create a clear objective risk of self-incrimination and therefore a risk to the liberty interest of the accused. A caution or lack of caution uh, became a relevant consideration almost immediately in this interview because police were objectively eliciting evidence that could implicate the accused. 
objectively the facts known by Sergeant White before he began the interview, as well as the things police learned as it progressed, undermined any reasonableness in Sergeant White's uh, belief that Mr. Tesse was not culpably connected to the homicide. Finally, contrary to the trial judge's conclusion that Sergeant White believed that the respondent had no culpable involvement, uh, Sergeant White's testimony suggested otherwise. First, as has been referred to uh, previously, his uh, comments about his level of suspicion were more framed as explanations for why police didn't have sufficient evidence to make Mr. Tessier a suspect. That's not the same as a belief that he was not culpably involved. It's merely a statement of not meeting some evidentiary threshold. Uh, and Sergeant White admitted Mr. Tessier became a person of interest during the 510 interview when he disclosed that he had recent, recently picked up a firearm from the shooting range. He defined person of interest as a person who would be worthy of further scrutiny into his actions and movements to verify or eliminate that he was either responsible or not responsible for the, the death of the deceased. So I would submit that this alone supports a finding of palpable and overriding error uh, in the fact finding that Sergeant White subjectively believed otherwise than that he was a potential suspect. The, the need for the caution was demonstrated by the interaction at the end uh, when the rest of the statement wasn't led by the Crown at the, at the trial of this matter which is the incorrect understanding of the voluntariness uh, as of the volunteers caution as given to, to Mr. Tessier by, by Sergeant White and accepted by him. So before turning the floor over to my colleague, I, I'd just like to conclude that what's being proposed by the respondent is merely a full contextual analysis of an interviewee's choice to provide a statement. At trial, the Crown must prove the voluntary choice was made uh, to provide a statement beyond a reasonable doubt. And as the Alberta Court of Appeal stated, the threshold is high because, the important, because of the important values at stake. Subject to any questions, I'll turn my remaining time over to Ms. Sitar. Thank you very much, Ms. Sitar. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. While detention triggers additional charter rights, the protections afforded by Section 9 are broader than the right to silence or the right to counsel. Fundamentally, Section 9 is concerned with freedom of movement and choice. Absent lawful grounds for arrest or detention, individuals are entitled to go about their lives without engaging with the state. This freedom includes the right to choose whether or not to speak with police. However, when a reasonable person in the shoes of the accused would feel they no longer had that liberty of choice, a detention will crystallize irrespective of whether police could have lawfully detained or arrested them at that time. This demonstrates the trial judge's core error in his Section 9 analysis, stemming from his use of Seagull and Moran as, a, as analytical templates. It is the respondent's position that reliance on the Moran factors invites such legal errors, and more fundamentally, their deployment is no longer legally useful or necessary. Grant and Lee can guide proper analysis of police station interviews, ensuring a focus remains on the modified objective test for detention. 
given that most individuals do not know the scope of police powers and presume police act within the bounds of the law, it would be reasonable for a person to conclude they have no choice but to attend a police station for an officer-requested interview unless the officer communicates information to the contrary, that the individual comes on their own to the police station without police having to pick them up means little unless they knew they did not have to come. Similarly, what the officer subjectively thought or intended by their words or actions is not the test. What matters is how that conduct would have been reasonably perceived by a person standing in the shoes of the accused. While Section 9 protects against significant restraints, reporting to a police station in response to an officer's direction is a significant intrusion on individual liberty and autonomy, the manifestations of which can be easily envisioned. Depending on the person, they may include calling in absent to work, cancelling appointments, arranging for childcare, finding transportation, and then travelling to a place they had no intention of going. Once they arrive at the station, itself a symbol of authority and power, the individual answers questions posed by a police officer, giving a statement they had no plans to provide. These impacts are not trivial, requiring far more than a direction to keep one's hands where an officer can see them or pulling a vehicle to a shoulder when signaled by an officer's lights and sirens. If those intrusions can be sufficiently significant to give rise to psychological detention, the series of steps necessary to attend for an officer-instigated interview should not be treated as conceptually or analytically distinct. The modified objective test for detention should still be applied. In this way, the respondent is not suggesting this court rewrite the law or expand the protections afforded by Section 9. The request is simply to bring police station interview determinations into line with existing jurisprudence on psychological detention. Grant and Lee focus on the perception of the reasonable person in the shoes of the accused for good reason, including to address imbalances of knowledge and power between individuals and police. That same rationale applies in police station interviews, where arriving in response to an officer's direction means little in the face of ambiguity regarding your obligation to do so. Deploying the modified objective framework would impose no new obligations on police in those circumstances. Pursuant to Grant, the law already contemplates officers dispelling ambiguity when they are uncertain if their conduct is having a coercive effect by telling individuals they are under no obligation to answer questions and that they are free to go. By taking the simple step when requesting a police station interview, however, police could go some distance in combating any future suggestion that the individual perceived no choice in whether or not to attend. Unlike many police station interview cases, Mr. Tessier was given no information to suggest that his attendance was optional. His arrival was prompted not by a single phone call from an officer, but at least two phone calls from two different officers, including a sergeant within 40 minutes of each other, with a possible third call during that time from a constable as well. When he arrived, he was escorted by Sergeant White to an interview room where he showed him his badge, a tangible symbol of his power and authority. And despite noting that Mr. Tessier appeared nervous, Sergeant White offered him no explanations regarding his legal status. He did not tell Mr. Tessier that his participation in the interview was optional. He did not tell him that the closed door was unlocked or that he was free to go at any time. When a break in the interview was prompted by Sergeant's White, Sergeant White's desire to go get a DNA kit, Mr. Tessier asked permission to go outside for a smoke. When the discussion began winding down, he asked if he was free to go. 
In such circumstances, the law takes no comfort in Sergeant White's subjective assertion he did not intend to detain Mr. Tessier. His words and actions communicated otherwise, leaving a reasonable person in Mr. Tessier's shoes with no perceivable choice in whether or not to comply. If Sergeant White wished to interview Mr. Tessier at the police station without triggering a detention, he should have unequivocally said he had no obligation to come or speak with police. If after receiving that information, Mr. Tessier came anyway, Sergeant White should have told him he could leave at any time. Can I ask, Thereafter, can, may I ask you, uh, Justice Maldaver raised it with your friend, w- what significance do you place on the fact that um, Mr. Tessier had the, the courage to say, no, I'm not going to provide a DNA sample? If, if, if you're suggesting that his circumstances were such that he felt obligated to comply, uh, what, how does that fit in? It strikes me that he felt quite unobligated to comply on that, on that what, a, a pointed request that he just turned down. And then minutes later was told he was free to go. So, Justice Kessler, I would point to um, how that DNA sample came came to be discussed and, and how it came to be that Mr. Tessier said no, because that was the one instance in the interview, as, as my colleague highlighted, where there was any option of choice provided to Mr. Tessier. He was told, you don't have to, but if you'd like to provide a voluntary DNA sample, um, and then he takes, uh, he asks if he can go have a cigarette and there's an indication that he speaks with his friend and his friend says, essentially, I, I don't know that you should do that. And so when he returns to the interview room, he then uh, says, actually, I'm not going to. And so I submitted actually illustrates the opposite, that when Mr. Tessier was told he had a choice, he then exercised that, exercised that choice to not um, cooperate and not um, give the DNA sample. But at no other time was he given any chance to make a choice. Do your submissions come down to this? Any time an individual is interviewed at a police station, they are detained? No, Justice Rowe, that's not the respondent's submission. The respondent's submission is some, in some is that if someone is going to be called to a police station for an interview, that they should be informed that the police would like to speak with them. They don't have to come down, but they'd like to speak with them. Give them some information that makes clear it's not an obligatory attendance because most individuals will think if a police officer says, come to the station, we need to talk to you, that you have to come, that you don't have a choice. Can I ask you something? The uh, Court of Appeals said that it was not necessarily an error to apply the Moran factors, but you say Moran's been overruled. Uh, by Grant and effectively Grant through Lee. Um, Should we avoid endorsing that part of their reasons? Thank you, Justice Brown. I would say that uh, what the Court of Appeal on my reading indicated was that to the extent that Grant and Lee are inconsistent with Moran, it's not necessarily a problem to rely. Um, And so I would certainly accept that the first and sixth factors would in Moran, which uh, deal with the precise language used, so how uh, they come to initiate an investigation and uh, the types of questions asked are certainly things that still under grant are relevant, but effectively they're subsumed within the grant analysis itself. Um, 
both in terms of the circumstances giving rise to an encounter would encompass what type of language a police officer used to initiate that encounter and the nature of the police conduct could incorporate uh, concerns about types of questions being posed. Thank you. And Ms. Sitar, may I ask you that if, if there is a detention in this case, does this court uh, or a court apply Section 24-2 or do we exclude automatically under the confessions rule? Uh, thank you, Justice Martin. I think if the court finds a Section 9 breach without a voluntariness concern, then the court's entitled as an appellate court uh, to, to look at 24-2 afresh. Um, if the confession rule is engaged, then it would be excluded on that basis. I hope that answers the question. Not really. What do you mean on that basis? Oh, I'm sorry. So if, if the voluntariness rule is engaged and the, up, the Court of Appeals ruling is upheld, um, then it would go back. That order would be upheld. If the Section 9 breach is found, conceivably the court could go on to consider 24-2. Right. A voluntariness breach doesn't get 20, put, through, put through a 24-2 analysis, right? No, and my understanding of the Court of Appeals decision was essentially the voluntariness. If the new trial is ordered on that basis, the matter goes back uh, for a new trial for that inquiry. Right. Got it. Thank you. I see I'm running out of time. My colleague has touched on many of the aspects of the detention um, and the factors that were known to Sergeant White and the types of questions that were posed. Um, in some, it's the respondent's submission that when Mr. Tessier attended the Didsbury detachment, a, a detention crystallized, uh, both as a product of how the police initiated that arrival and the nature of the questions that were posed, and that this provides an alternate right or an alternate route in this particular case. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Ms. Sector. Good afternoon. The CCLA intervenes on an issue of civics. In Canada, every person has a right to be left alone. Every person has a right to silence. Some people know their rights and some don't. And this is in contrast to the police who know exactly what they can and cannot do. The CCLA proposes that in balancing public safety and civil liberties, the court may authorize the police to speak to anyone, but not allow the answers to be used unless the state proves the citizen made an informed choice. The compromise we propose takes care of the public safety concerns raised by every crown on this appeal while protecting the civil liberties of every citizen. The basic civil liberty of making a meaningful, informed choice to speak. People need information in order to make a meaningful choice. So the CCLA's proposal will not hinder law enforcement investigations. The chilling effect that the Chief Justice raised, the other side of the balance that Justice Jamal raised, voluntariness is just about the use of the statement. It is not about controlling police behavior. Unlike a charter right, the confessions rule does not prescribe the bare minimum for police conduct. The choice of whether to caution remains 
in the hands of the police. Ms. Sexer, we're, we're talking, though, about the common law confessions rule, obviously, and what I hear you saying, though, is that it would impose a effectively a substantive obligation on police, whereas voluntariness previously has been in considered in terms of what the police cannot do rather than what they must do. So there is a, a very different and fairly fundamental change that you're proposing through the common law confessions rule to impose a substantive obligation. Justice Jamal, it's only a substantive obligation if the Crown wants to use it at trial. The Crown wants to use that information at trial. What if they want so, to use it to get a search warrant? Well, then that question would be, is this a derived confession? So it isn't just Resulting a from a search warrant. It isn't just a is trial. This, it could affect the whole investigation. It could affect the whole investigation, but that's what uh, all voluntariness questions engage. If there's any other kind of involuntary uh, statement, there will always be the question of whether is the other information that was derived from the involuntary right. I just ask you that because you're issue. trying to minimize the concern here. You're trying to minimize it really almost out of existence. Don't worry about it. They just can't use the statement. I'm not trying to minimize it. Justice Moldaver, I'm saying that the control still rests with the police. If the police, who may have knowledge of the case and knowledge of the law, decide not to caution an eventual defendant, that only denies the police the evidentiary use of the statement in the defendant's criminal trial and derivative evidence. That is fair. That allows the police to investigate. That allows the police to question. If the citizen knows they have a right to walk away or the consequences of giving a statement, that will be key to a voluntariness finding, a necessary but insufficient element. But if the police withhold basic information about civil liberties in the course of the investigation, then that information the police get from a resulting statement is not available for use at the defendant's trial. Our proposed clarification is, is going to change how the police approach the borderline cases, but not how they do their jobs Monday to Friday, where they charge into a chaotic scene and interview everyone present. The information from witnesses will always be voluntary. Witnesses won't have standing to challenge the involuntariness of their statement. It's only in the rare case where one of the citizens present turns out to be the defendant that the rule we propose will apply, rendering the statement involuntary, inadmissible. And if the police have chosen not to caution, then the presumption of inadmissibility that we've proposed applies. And I just want to touch on uh, the subjective point that uh, the appellant raised, which is that our proposal does not change this into a subjective test. Uh, this, the court clarified in a bear that the focus will be on the conduct of the police, and the same is true of our proposed test. Did the police tell the defendant about their right to silence? Did the police tell them about the consequences of forgoing that right? Thank you. I realize I'm out of time. Thank you very much. Any reply, Mr. Greener? Yes, briefly, thank you. <clears throat> If I can just maybe pick up on that last point about the subjective or objective analysis, and my friend suggested to you that the Court of Appeal correctly identified um, the objective, modified objective nature of the test, and that nothing else in their reasons uh, suggests they lost sight of that. I'll just remind you, and I've raised this already, that the Court of Appeal identified the key issue, the error committed by the trial judge, 
as his lack of focus on whether Mr. Tessier chose to make a statement knowing he didn't have to, knowing that anything he said could be given in evidence. Uh, I don't read that as in any way compatible with an objective analysis. Uh, I then um, would just observe there's a tension both in the Court of Appeals analysis and in my friend's position, which in my submission is not resolvable. My friend has invited you uh, to consider a rule that police ought to or are obligated to caution when they reasonably should know that their question may result in self-incrimination. Uh, but then he's also said, and the Court of Appeal in my submission also says this, that the essence of voluntariness is proof of whether the accused knew uh, he didn't have to say anything and the uses to which it could be put. But that's a concern which in my submission would be present in every statement, whether or not the police intended to elicit self-incriminating evidence, elicited in bare information which in hindsight they should have so regarded. Um, that is to say, either the focus is on the knowledge of the accused of his right to silence, which in my submission is a waiver standard inconsistent with the voluntariness rule, uh, in which case police do have an obligation to caution everyone, or at minimum, the Crown has an obligation to prove a waiver beyond a reasonable doubt in every case. And that will be very difficult to do in the absence of a, of a caution having been given. Turning then to the rule that is proposed by my friend, um, I'll just raise some questions as to whether or not such a rule is, is workable or in fact realistically connects to the purposes of the voluntariness rule, which in my submission is the restraint of police coercion on the choice to make a statement. My friend has suggests now that the police should have been alerted. The obligation of caution will arise when the police should be alerted of the risk of self-incrimination. But on the facts of this case, you can see, apart from any hypotheticals about, you know, where it might be far-fetched, do we need to caution every resident of an apartment building? Do we need to caution the victim's mother upon informing her of his death? But on the facts of this case, there's something of a moving target in what fact it's suggested should have alerted the police um, that Mr. Tessier could be involved. At trial, the argument was, well, he last saw him at 8 p.m. on Thursday. In the fact of there's some suggestion that it was relevant that he knew what the victim was wearing, that this clothes description he gives matches the clothes found on the body. And this morning, it's suggested that he should have been alerted to the possibility of self-incrimination when he asks, after being shown by Mr. Tessier, his vehicle registration papers, without being asked for them, he says, oh, is that your vehicle, this Ford F-150? So today, the suggestion is, well, that fact given the presence of tire tracks at the scene, uh, should have, uh, have alerted the police. Um, it's simply an unworkable rule. And with respect to that last point in particular, um, I, I hope you won't fault me for giving evidence, but the suggestion that someone driving an F-150 significantly narrows down the pool of suspects uh, in rural Alberta, uh, I suggest is not made out on this record. And I thank you for your time. Could I ask you one question, please, before you sit down? Can Whittle possibly stand if we accept the Alberta Court of Appeals analysis that you have to be able to make a meaningful choice? There's someone that was schizophrenic hearing auditory voices, and the court said, 
Well, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. It's uh, so I'm just that's the question. Do we have to overrule Whittle if we adopt the British Columbia or the uh, Alberta Court of Appeals so-called? I don't know whether it's a new test or an advanced test or what it is. I think you would. It's my submission that the Court of Appeal has misread. Whittle has extended it beyond what Will says. Um, yeah, and potentially to an extent which is inconsistent with the facts of Whittle and the result reached in that case. All right, thank you very much. I'd like to thank counsel for their submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. And the court is adjourned till tomorrow morning, 10.30. Ottawa time. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.